This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. As with Genesis this morning, we've been away from John for a few weeks, but we return there tonight looking at the remainder of chapter 12. I will begin in verse 20 and continue through the end of the chapter in verse 50. We actually have here the last portion recorded in John of Jesus' public ministry, his public teaching. Everything after this uh, that we have recorded will be teaching that is done in private to his disciples and to others. So this is John chapter 12, verses 20 through 50. Here now the reading of God's holy word. Now my soul... It, oh, sorry, that's 27. Uh, verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts by your Holy Spirit to receive it. As we see Jesus' final words of public teaching in John, I pray that you would write them on our hearts and that we would see in him the glorious realities of the gospel shown forth and of the work that Christ came to do and has done for us, your children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time we were in John, we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem for the final week of his ministry before his death. He was received as the king by those who understood the kind of king that he was, and even some who didn't quite understand, those who were still looking for the liberating geopolitical king to get rid of the Romans. At the end of our passage last time, the first couple verses of what I read tonight, we saw that some Greeks, some proselytes to the Jewish faith, though they were not ethnic Jews, they came to Jesus' disciples because they wanted to see Jesus. Jesus did not merely come to be the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, or the king of Jerusalem. He is the king of heaven and earth. And the Greeks were coming to him in Jerusalem, and that previews and foreshadows how Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. But Jesus' immediate response is not to receive them, but rather to teach everyone gathered that Passover week in Jerusalem as to what is about to transpire. In many ways, it provides a corrective to some of the over-realized and overzealous views of Jesus' person and work, uh, particularly his kingly reign that some seem to embrace. Now we see that Jesus is king, and he will show himself to be king, and Lord, despite many trials and obstacles ahead. And that will be the main focus of our message tonight, and we will see this in three points. First, Jesus is King and Lord, despite his dying, in verses 23 through 33. 
he foretells what is about to immediately come that week in Jerusalem and what it means and what it will do. But second, Jesus is king and Lord despite disbelief in verses 34 through 41. Many still reject and oppose Jesus. This is not only some unfortunate occurrence, it is in fact according to the definite will and plan of God. But then third and finally, we will see that Jesus is king and Lord despite darkness in verses 42 through 50. He has come to do his work of making a division between those who are his, those who are not, his kingdom and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death, the kingdom of Satan. So again, tonight we will see that Jesus is king and Lord despite death, disbelief and darkness. Those are our three points for this evening. So first we see that Jesus is king and Lord despite his dying in verses 23 through 33. When the Greeks come to Jesus, they want to see him, but it seems that he doesn't actually receive them and speak to them. Rather, he relays a message to Philip and Andrew. He addresses the crowd again. Now, it is not that Jesus does not care about the Greeks. In fact, in this message, he shows great love and concern for them and for everyone there. And then he relays some of the most important and profound truths that exist. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus' departure is imminent. He is merely a few days from his arrest and trial and crucifixion. He is here in this passage tonight making his last public teachings. He has a particular work to do particular things to teach, and there will be a particular emphasis in the remainder of John on preparing his disciples for his departure. Starting in the next chapter, we will see Jesus and his disciples gathered in the upper room for the upper room discourse, the final set of teachings and instructions for his disciples. So we won't see any lengthy meetings at this point of Jesus with the Greeks or with anyone else. But what Jesus does teach here in the rest of chapter 12 is vitally important for any that are gathered in that crowd, including those Greeks, to understand. In verse 23, he declares that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now remember, at various times throughout John, we have seen Jesus say, or we have seen John in narrating, note that Jesus' time his hour had not yet come, this being the hour for his death and resurrection. Now we are at the key turning point. The hour which had previously not come has now come. Jesus is in his final few days and there are preparations to make. Now Jesus describes what is about to happen using an agricultural metaphor as he often does in verse 24. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Many of you farm. Some of you, I'm sure, even grow wheat. You have no need for me to explain that process to you. If there's a wheat seed, if I just keep it up here on the pulpit or at my house or in a bag in the shed, nothing's going to happen with it. 
But if I take that seed outside, I plant it in the ground and the conditions are otherwise right, then it's going to grow and it's going to produce much more wheat, but it's going to come by that seed being destroyed, that seed dying. Jesus is using this illustration to describe his coming suffering and death. There has been fruit from his ministry so far. He has accumulated some believers, some followers. His message has gone forth to some people. But compared with what's to come, compared to the future of Christ's church, it's very small. It's as though one grain of wheat has been produced when there are millions more to come. And really, Jesus himself is that grain of wheat. He must undergo death so that all the nations will be brought to him. Though Jesus will walk the bitter path of suffering and death, he purposes to do this to accomplish the redemption of his people. And that redemption, as we have seen in so many times, in so many ways, is not confined to what is going on at that time in Israel or the surrounding areas. The gospel is going to go forth in Jerusalem, but also to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We have seen this in limited and shadowy forms in Jesus' ministry, how back in chapter 4, he went to Samaria and had fruitful ministry there. We have seen how some even of the Gentiles and even some of Jesus' enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees, have come to believe. That's just one seed. That's just the beginning. And through Jesus' suffering and death, And what comes after, all the nations will be brought to him. But this triumph will come through apparent tragedy. The spread will come after sorrow. The deliverance will come through death. And Jesus' disciples even may be called to walk the path of death that Jesus walks. He says next in verse 25, He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Like a seed must be planted, like it must be destroyed and buried for any life to come from it. So too, not only Christ, but even perhaps his followers must suffer so that the gospel may go forth and salvation may come to his people. Those who want to follow Jesus may well have to follow him through sorrow and suffering. But doing so comes with the guarantee of eternal life and eternal honor that can only come from the Father, the reception of well-done, good and faithful servants. But again, this doesn't mean that the path is easy. Even Jesus himself acknowledges in verse 27 that his soul is troubled. Now for us, when our souls are troubled... Our instinct is often to ask for deliverance from the thing that troubles our souls. That's not necessarily a wrong or a bad thing to seek relief from our distressing circumstances, but Jesus' soul is troubled because he must suffer and die to accomplish the very mission for which he came to earth, that mission to redeem his people. If he does not complete it, There is no hope. He can't walk away at this point or all his people die in their sins. And he knows this and he is committed. He asks, 
hypothetically, if he should ask the Father to deliver him from this hour, from what is to come. But he knows that that is absurd. He knows he cannot. He knows he must finish the work he came to do, and that he will, and that he and the Father through him will be glorified in it. And the Father's voice comes from heaven and acknowledges this. When Jesus asks the Father to glorify his name, the Father replies, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The Father has already been glorified in the things that Jesus has said and done. But he will be most glorified in what Jesus will do next, his suffering and death, through which those estranged from God because of sin will be brought back, will be reconciled to God. But even this voice is misunderstood. In verse 29, we see that some there thought it was thunder. The voice of the Lord was something like thunder, such that it could be confused for it. Others thought it was a voice, but they thought, ah, oh, it's a voice of an angel. For they do not know, they do not understand that they had heard the very voice of God the Father. They did not understand God's Trinitarian existence and operations, that God could stand before them and also thunder from heaven. Many of the crowd still disbelieved in Jesus, and so they disbelieved that any such sound could come from God. I would guess that most of the skeptics there, they would have been the ones saying that it was thunder. Well, it's just some natural coincidence. It has nothing to do with God. That would be the posture of many such skeptics in our day. They could hear the very voice of God from heaven and find some way to explain it away. That is the power of unbelief. But Jesus explains why the voice of the Father has come in verse 30. The voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Jesus, being God, knows perfectly and infallibly that he is doing the Father's will. He and the Father have covenanted together with the Holy Spirit to redeem a people. They did this from eternity past, from the foundation of the earth. This has always been the plan. Jesus already knows that this is for the glory of the Father. But the voice has come so that the people might hear and know and understand. Now clearly not everyone does. But to those who believe, this would be validation. And perhaps to some who do not yet believe, this might be means by which they would come to believe. But then Jesus says next in verse 31, Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus has come to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. But the world already had a king that had been ruling over it since Adam's fall. The prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, the devil, Satan. So Christ has come to take back what Satan has stolen. He has come to bring Satan's kingdom to an end. Of course, this doesn't happen all at once. But with his death and resurrection, he decisively begins the process of building his kingdom, the church. 
and bringing every tribe, tongue, and nation that had been separated from God back in. And he will continue to do so until the end of this world. Of course, he does not win this triumph over Satan in the way we might expect. He doesn't do it bringing an army of angels and plundering all that Satan has taken. No, he does it through his suffering and death, as he says again in verses 32 and 33. He says that he will be lifted up from the earth. Now this recalls the language of his meeting with Nicodemus back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He said then, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, Jesus' kingly exaltation does not come as a typical kingly exaltation might. Just a few months ago, we had the coronation of King Charles III of Great Britain, the first change of the British monarch in over 60 years. It was a great ceremony. There was fanfare, parades and processions, visits from other leaders and dignitaries. That's the sort of occasion you usually have when a king is exalted, when a king is crowned, when a king is raised up. But Jesus' exaltation was different. He did have something of a parade earlier in this chapter, but it was a fanfare largely led by the common people. He rode in as a humble Galilean builder's son on the back of a humble donkey. And his exaltation will be humble. By the end of the week, he will be lifted up, not to a palace, not to a throne, but to a cross. He won't be crowned with gold or precious stones, but with thorns. Jesus is the most powerful of kings, the king of kings, Yet he is the unlikeliest of kings because his kingly exaltation comes through his suffering and death. Now we see that not everyone in the crowd that day in Jerusalem was ready to receive Jesus as king and as Lord. This brings us to our second point. After seeing that Jesus will be king and Lord despite his death, we see that Jesus will be king and Lord despite disbelief in verses 34 through 41. Some want to dispute with the things that Jesus has just told them. Many prophecies concerning the Christ, the Messiah, they describe his kingdom as being forever, and rightly so. One such text is Psalm 89, verses 35 through 37, which says, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. This is the source of confusion. Jesus is describing his lifting up, but he's describing that he will suffer and die. How does that work with a king who reigns forever? In fact, even after he's raised from the dead, he will ascend into heaven and he will, in physical terms, be absent for thousands of years. Some refuse to believe in a Messiah that promises to leave them. 
Their expectations are wrong. They are expecting someone who will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem forever, throwing off Rome, throwing off all other oppressors and establishing the perfect earthly kingdom. But Jesus will not be dissuaded. His purpose is certain, and he says so in his response. A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Jesus knows that his death is not only coming, but it's coming soon, merely a few days away. And he knows the hearts of man. He knows how this will occur. While there was a crowd there in Jerusalem that day that gave him a king's welcome, by Friday there will be another crowd in Jerusalem shouting, Crucify him! The darkness had already overtaken many, such as the scribes and Pharisees who at that very moment were plotting to put Jesus to death. Even Jesus' disciples, those closest to him, would taste of that darkness. Judas would betray Jesus and for it face his own death and condemnation. Peter would deny Jesus three times. Almost all the other disciples would flee and hide. While Jesus entered Jerusalem in triumph, soon things would look quite the opposite. Jesus continues, He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Those in darkness often don't know they're in darkness. They think they're okay. They think they're good people. They think they have life and salvation somehow, even if there's no fear of God before them. But they're lost. They're stumbling in the dark. And so Jesus calls them to believe. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Though Jesus' earthly ministry is rapidly drawing to a close, those who are gathered are externally called to faith. They are called from the darkness to become sons of light. But after this, Jesus departs from the crowd and is hidden from them. And yet John tells us the outcome. Though Jesus had done these signs, this particular gathering did not believe in him. And John cites two prophecies from Isaiah to explain why this happened and why it was prophetically foretold. First, Isaiah 53.1, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, what is Isaiah 53 known for? I preached on this text on Good Friday. It is because it is one of the clearest messianic prophecies, one of the greatest prophecies concerning Christ in his suffering. That prophecy itself expresses something of bewilderment, something of a paradox. This suffering servant would be exalted despite being ugly, bloody, gory, marred, even beyond human recognition. Who would believe that? Yet the miracle of salvation is that by God's effectual calling, his people do. John here also cites Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. This was Isaiah's own prophetic commission after his vision of the throne of God. Isaiah was told that the hearts of Israel were hard, that though he would prophesy to them, they would not hear because God had hardened their hearts. 
What was true of Isaiah was even more true of Jesus. Jesus had appeared to Israel. He had done all these great signs and wonders in their presence. He had revealed to them the very glory of God. Yet many still would not believe because God had not opened their eyes and their hearts to believe. John also says in verse 41 that Isaiah said these things when he saw his glory. Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. The God that Isaiah saw and trembled in the presence of was the Son of God. But God in his sovereignty has elected some to salvation while passing over others, such that even the greatest of signs and wonders and manifestations of God's glory are not enough. Yet Jesus remains King and Lord despite disbelief. But now we turn to our final point. We see in verses 42 through 50 that Jesus is King and Lord despite darkness. We learn in verses 42 and 43 that many believed in Jesus even among the rulers. This would be those of the scribes and Pharisees. They heard and saw what Jesus had said and done and believed his words were true, but they were cowards. We know of one such example Nicodemus, though he will soon prove himself to be more true. But many of these rulers believed, but they were unwilling to confess Jesus before men because they were unwilling to be put out of the synagogue. They were unwilling to face the consequences and rejection that came with following Jesus. They were unwilling to put their faith into any kind of action. Many, even in our day, might claim some belief in Jesus, but... They keep him bottled up in a corner as much as they can. Maybe the fact that they're Christians, the fact that they believe comes out for an hour or two on Sundays when they come to church, but the rest of the week there is no salt, no light, nor no speech or evidence of living in faith in Christ. Because if they do that, they might offend an unbelieving world. They might lose the benefits and comforts of worldly living. But Jesus' words serve as a warning to those who, like these rulers, love the praise of man more than the praise of God. The world more and more hates Christ in Christianity. And if we want to be faithful in this time, we may have to pay for it. But do not be those who love the praise of man more than the praise from God. And then Jesus offers in verses 44 through 50, essentially his last public teaching in John. Almost everything after this is what is said in private to his disciples. And in it, he essentially summarizes everything he has taught up to this point. And what he says will sound very familiar if you've been here throughout this series. In verses 44 and 45, Jesus again asserts his equality with the Father and the necessity of knowing him to know the Father. He says, he who believes not believes in me, believes not in me. Perhaps think of him saying, not only me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. What does this mean? It's the old refrain. No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no salvation. 
There is no knowledge of God apart from the knowledge of Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Jesus has come as the light of the world to show the world the way out of its sin and misery and death. But many would rather continue to walk in darkness. Now for this, judgment is not immediate. Jesus has not come at this time to judge the world, but to save it. Again, recalling John chapter 3. Jesus' incarnation was to accomplish the work of redemption. Jesus knows there were many in that crowd who still did not believe, and they were ultimately under God's final judgment for the rejection of his word. But Jesus does not pronounce the worthy condemnation upon them. And yet he reminds them that that judgment is coming. Though they escape judgment for a time, ultimately, as verse 48 says, they will be judged at the last day for their rejection of Christ's words, the rejection of the gospel, the rejection of the words of life. This is true of everyone in the world. All will one day face a judgment on the basis of the word of Christ. We will be called to account and held to account for what we have done with the gospel. If we are trusting in ourselves and trusting in the praise of man over the praise of God, trusting in false gods, trusting in false faiths, we will not pass God's final judgment. Yet for a time, we still have the call and we still have the opportunity to repent and believe. What will you do with this opportunity? Jesus concludes his public teaching by again asserting that he acts not on his own authority, but the authority given to him by the Father. And that what he has commanded Jesus to bring is nothing less than the way to everlasting life. Jesus ends his public ministry as it so often was, calling people to salvation, to truly know and believe God by truly knowing and believing him. Yet he does this knowing that men love the darkness more than the light. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God, and they will persist in sin and death. But Jesus' words to the crowd that day in Jerusalem were just as true then as they are to us alive today in 2023. And it challenges us in the same ways. Do we love the praise of men more than the praise that comes from God? Do we believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, or do we trust in someone or something else? Jesus will be king, Jesus will be Lord, and Jesus is the only Savior. He is these things despite whatever the world does and says about him. He is king despite his suffering and death, and he is in fact king because of his suffering and death. For in it, he redeems a people from their sins and purchases them for his name. He is king because he is raised from the dead, conquering sin and death forever. The question is, will you receive and rest upon him as he is freely offered in the gospel? And if you do, what then will you do with him? Because there is a world that is dying in its sins. Will you be as those in the crowd who, because of fear of man, will not speak? Or will you seek to make Christ's name known and great and glorious?
Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us, these words of life. We pray that all here gathered would receive and rest upon Jesus as he is offered in this gospel. We've also seen in this text cautions and warnings. We know that there are those who love the praise of men more than the praise of God. I pray that we would not be among them, but we would be faithful to not only have faith, Uh, that comes as a gift from you, but that we would also put our faith into action, that we would be salt and light in this lost and dying world. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.